How do you design a good experimental study? How do you even know that you're asking a good research question? Moreover, how can you align funding and publishing incentives with the principles of an open source science? Let's do another big picture episode to try and answer these questions. You know, these episodes that I want to do from time to time with people who are not from the Bayesian world to see what good practices there are out there. The first one, episode 15, was focused on programming in Python, thanks to Michael Kennedy. And in this episode, you'll meet Daniel Lackens. Daniel is an experimental psychologist at the Human Technology Interaction Group at Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. He's worked there since 2010, when he received his PhD in social psychology. His research focuses on how to design and interpret studies, applied metastatistics, and reward structures in science. Daniel loves teaching about research methods and about how to ask good research questions. He even crafted free Coursera courses about these topics. A fervent advocate of open science, he prioritizes scholar articles review requests based on how much the articles adhere to open science principles. On his blog, he describes himself as the 20% statistician. Why? Well, he'll tell you in the episode. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 18, recorded April 6, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.anvil.app. That's learnbasestats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching Daniel Lackens, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I'm really happy to talk about statistics, about experiment design, open science. I know these topics are dear to my audience. Good. Look forward to it. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> We're not going to dive headfirst into the history of open science and your research. I think it will be best to first talk about your background. So you did your PhD in social psychology. So how come and what's your story, basically? Yeah, I was always interested in people, which is common for a lot of psychologists. We have some interest in people, not so much interest in statistics, which we'll get to later on. So it's a bit of a selection towards people who are interested in other people. And I think when I was young, I had not a good idea of what different studies were about. So I thought, you know, if I end up doing anything like clinical psychology, I sort of know what that looks like. I might like it. So I started to study psychology. And I think after two or three months, I thought, okay, I'm never going to do anything like clinical psychology. <laughs> But then I discovered that I like studying people and how they behave and how they act and how they make decisions and what they do and why. So I drifted towards social psychology and I enjoyed that a lot. Oh, yeah. I can see where that's coming from. Mm. So if I understood correctly, you're an experimental psychologist, but now you're more into the statistics side of mm. things. So how come, how did this happen? 
Yeah, personally, I really wasn't too interested in statistics. After I completed my PhD, I used statistics and I designed experiments for my PhD. But only after this, I sort of got into figuring out how to do research really well. We had in psychology this reproducibility crisis. And my interest in statistics really started when I joined the reproducibility project in psychology. That was a paper published in 2015, which consists of 100 replication studies. But the project started much earlier, I think 2011, more or less. And that was just a year after I completed my PhD. And then we had to design a replication study and we had some instructions to do it as well as possible. Strangely enough, this was the first time where I thought, well, if I mess up, then the original person doing this research is going to be really upset with me. So I have to do the best possible job. And then we got into a discussion about a power analysis, which is a good idea if you do a replication, make sure it's a well-powered replication. And then I had the following interaction with this original researcher, sort of like, okay, I need an effect size to plug into my power analysis. Can you help me give an effect size? And this person is like, well, I have some numbers from my analysis. I went to this online website. I typed in a couple of these numbers and then I got this number out of it, which seems to be the effect size. Is this what you need? And then I thought, okay, now I'm going to take this number and plug it into a power analysis software that I don't understand as well. And then I'm going to get a magical sample size. I have no clue what I'm doing. The original researcher had no clue what we were doing. And then I thought, this is problematic. If we want to design good studies, how can it be that I've completed my PhD and I'm completely oblivious to this stuff? And for me, this was really a realization. Like, if I want to do a good job, I need to take a break and figure this stuff out. How hard can it be, right? So this was really the start for me to get into figuring out what now you might consider just basics that you hope you get into education. But apparently I was able to go through an entire PhD without having been forced to completely understand this. And I found this so surprising that I thought, okay, I'm going to take a break from doing research for a while. So there's a year somewhere in my resume where I didn't publish it a lot, but I tried to learn a lot of stuff. That's really interesting. And I want to dig deeper later on the road about the reproducibility crisis and so on. Also, because it's how you became that involved into what you're doing today in statistical research, experimental design and so on. But even though this show is a little special and not as centered on Bayesian methods as usual. So I've got to ask you if you were introduced even to Bayesian statistics during your studies and maybe also if you know how Bayesian the field of psychology is. Yeah, the first time that I remember being introduced to Bayesian statistics, there was a conversation between me as a young PhD student and assistant professor in my department. And he said, you know, actually, there's this thing called Bayesian statistics. It's the better way to do statistics, but nobody does it. So we don't do it. <laughs> and I also think that was sort of his understanding at the time. Like there's this other thing. We don't really know what it is. It's supposed to be much better, but nobody does it. The end. So that was super interesting. And then I think the field of psychology really got introduced to the idea of Bayesian statistics as a way to improve the way we do research by a paper by people from Amsterdam, among others, which was a reply to a study by Daryl Bem, who studies precognition. And this was one of the early starting points of the reproducibility crisis. He had published a nine-study paper on precognition so that people could predict the future in very basic cognitive tasks. And in these tasks, he flipped around the time order in which people would respond. So normally you'd see a stimulus and then classify it. But here people have to classify a stimulus and they don't even know what the stimulus will be. So they're basically random guessing. But if they can see the future, they would score better than guessing average. And a response by this team was, look, if you would have analyzed this the right way, the Bayesian way, 
you would see that all these studies were not convincing at all. So this was, I think, an early starting point for people to think about this. And then later, I think it mainly became popular in the sense that you could support null effects because the frequentist paradigm that dominates psychology still, and I think that's still the case, that doesn't allow you to do anything with null results. So people were like, well, what if I don't find anything? How can I support the null? And then, well, it was explained that base factors especially are popular, I think, in psychology. Base factors are a way to do this. And now you see more and more people pick up, especially the base factors in this area of supporting null results. Very often you'll see people use frequentist statistics for their main analysis, then they find a null result and they're like, oh wait, I have this other tool. Let me fly in my Bayesian analysis now that I need it. And then they will report the Bayesian analysis. But I think based on some papers I've read, which analyze statistics people use, the percentage is quite low, like between 5 and 10% of papers that report mainly based factors, I think. The more advanced Bayesian modeling is also relatively rare, especially in experimental psychology, because we manipulate things. So for us, it's quite easy to have high experimental control. At the same time, I think we have low priors because the field went through a replication crisis. So we don't know if things are true or not. So you can have maybe a bit diffuse priors. But beyond that, I think the field is slightly hesitant to have more informed priors. Yeah, that's super interesting. Actually, can you talk a little bit more now about what you call the reproducibility crisis in the psychology field? So there was a lot of discussion around early failures to replicate studies. The failure to replicate doesn't mean that they couldn't do the study, but it means that when they redid the study, they observed an effect size that was basically zero, very far removed from the effect sizes as they were originally reported in the literature. And there were a couple of examples of these and quite a lot of discussion about this. Whereas you might think that science has to be very self-critical, and if you don't find something that should be interesting, the original author should say, oh, well, let's figure out how this came about. What you saw instead was highly defensive reactions, like how do you dare to say that my study doesn't replicate? At the same time, a lot of people knew from their attempts to replicate studies that, yeah, very often they wouldn't be able to do it. I remember discussions from my PhD where somebody said, we should actually have an independent committee that tries to replicate these kind of studies because otherwise we can never show that they were false, which is weird, right? So yeah. it, apparently it didn't fit into our normal way to do science. Mm -hmm. And this took so long that... I think at a certain moment, people thought, wait, what can we replicate? And this was also the starting point for this reproducibility project that people then started like, okay, let's then have an empirical estimate of how can we do this and what are the numbers? And this now has translated to other fields. So I think psychology was one of the first fields to take this quite seriously. But you see similar replication efforts have been done in other fields with very comparable results, actually, which means that in terms of the results, it's not looking super good. Very often, the numbers are a bit lower than you would hope. You don't want everything to just replicate. I mean, this is cutting at science, but these percentages were quite low. So this is the reproducibility crisis. And I think the reason it's a crisis is that people are really sort of doubting, well, what can I build on? Or some older researchers think, wait, what of the things that I have done are actually reliable? So the crisis is really the doubt that comes with this. Yeah, I can relate to people being uh, very aggressive when you tell them that what they worked for almost their entire life or for a long time at least. Yeah. When you're telling them, actually, it's not replicable. So it's very probable that you didn't find what you thought you had find. Yeah. And maybe your work is just not very worthy in the end. Yeah, I guess that probably leads to aggressive behavior just from an emotional perspective. Yeah. Exactly. I totally understand that this is very distressing event to have happened. 
and I've had this myself. So I'm kind of lucky that I'm just in this turning phase. So actually the first paper I published is not reproducible at all. We used a lot of the faulty research practices that now have become much better understood and better educated about. But we had this first paper and we were criticized in a similar manner. Somebody wrote a paper said, nah, this can't be. This is too good to be true. And we had this emotional response and also combined with this lack of understanding of statistics. So you're being sort of criticized because of statistical reasons and you don't fully understand them. And then you feel double uncertain. Like I'm uncertain about what I've done, but I'm also uncertain about if I can even understand what I've done wrong. Exactly. What can I do if I don't understand the criticism? Yeah, I think also a good reason for me to get a better understanding. I thought, come on, we should be able to understand these kind of things. I still think it's important that we spend more time learning statistics than we get in our traditional education, I think. Yeah, it sounds like a situation where... uh... At the macro level, this reproducibility project is really the good thing to do for science because, as you said, in science, you must be able to criticize every result coming in and telling people that this is not the way you should do that. You have this weakness and so on. It's it's really hard for people to handle. And even for you, maybe if you know the person that you're criticizing, it's really hard to handle because you have different incentives on the different levels. Yeah, what you point out is important. Like science is at many research lines, it's a rather small research area. I mean, you have to criticize people that you really like, Mm -hmm. which is tough. So yeah, we do this in a very weird way in science. We require this sort of criticism, but we also like it if everybody likes each other, which makes sense. But it's very difficult to combine these things. I sometimes wonder we shouldn't just teach statistics, but we should teach something like Zen meditation, (laughs) that you can sit every morning and everything is fine, nothing is personal, blah, blah, blah. I mean, almost that you need training in receiving criticism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I remember the first research seminar I attended. It was in Berlin at the Freie Universität. And that was the first time I attended a research seminar in my life. And there were these researcher who had come all the way from the US and he was presenting a paper. And then during the Q&A, everybody was asking really harsh questions, you know, and was like, what is going on there? I mean, it's awful. If I was at the place yeah. of this guy, I would be completely lost. And the guy was really good because he stayed very calm. I think he stilled himself, you know, from <laughs> years of experience. And after the seminar, he was like talking to people very calmly. And these interactions were super weird uh, because during the seminar, everybody was really hard on him and then after that they went to have drinks together and I was like wow what's that <laughs> but as you say it's good it's supposed to work that way during the seminar even though on a personal level it's really weird and actually I think all that ties with the goal of your research lab which is to quote it to improve the reliability and efficiency of psychological science end of quote mm. so I'm wondering what do you mean by that and what are the issues you're trying to solve? So because I do a lot of research myself, well, more statistics, but until a year or two years ago, I would do just my old experimental psychological research as well, supervising PhD students. So I've always thought, what about what I'm doing right now? Can I improve? Mm. So that's, I think, the goal. And we've realized due to the problems with reproducing results, but even unrelated things that people then stumble across, like, oh, there's more than just the reproducibility we should wonder about. Theory in psychology could be improved. Measurement could be improved. All sorts of things. So what I try to do is just take a look around and think, okay, 
what are the issues that we're facing and how could we improve those on a real practical matter. So when I think about a project that I do, I always want the end result to be something that if I tell you about it, you think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to go back to work and I can change something in practice. I can improve something about the way that I work. That's the goal. And the kind of things that we do is very often not novel at all. So a lot of the research that we write about has not per se any novelty, but we introduce it to people who don't know about it yet. So sometimes we might look at medical statistics, like biostatistics, and see techniques that are being used there that are not used in psychology. So for example, sequential analysis is an example of something I published about a couple of years ago, where I thought, hey, This is actually what we want to do. It was one of the problematic research practices we were doing. We were doing optional stopping. You collect a little bit of data, you analyze it, you collect more and more, which is problematic. Yesterday, I think on Twitter, I saw somebody say, we collected animals until our data became statistically significant. And they had written it up in a paper. Well, if you keep sampling, you will always find a significant result, right? So it's problematic, but there's a right way to do it. Sequential analysis, you correct your error rate, you make sure that you can look at your data multiple times. And doing this is very efficient. And this is why in medical research, people do it. But then I look around and I see psychologists try to do optional stopping the bad way, And I know that there's a technique that's the right thing to do and that will make you more efficient. So then I think, okay, let's introduce people to a technique like this. Yeah, Yeah, so that's really what we try to focus on. And sometimes this requires a little bit translation, just like how would this work? For example, we don't have medical ethics panels that evaluate the data in between. So how would this work in the context of psychologists where they do their own data analysis? But sometimes it might be a bit more substantial where we have to think, okay, what does this even mean in psychology? Do we have these things? And then If so, how can we get this basically, right? So that's a lot of what we do, just trying to improve research practices most of the time, ideally with the goal that people become more efficient when they do it. So not just at big personal costs, which I understand, you know, to improve research, you have to make your life a lot more difficult. Just do one good study in your career and that will be a really good study, right? That would be true but also slightly unfeasible. Mm. But there is a lot of stuff that we can do that will make your research quite a lot better. And that is feasible, that you can actually incorporate in your research practices. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about while you were explaining your project. It's really fascinating to see some initiatives like that in social sciences. And yeah, I was thinking that in the end, it helps save time for everyone. For the researcher, it helps having a better design studies from ground zero instead of waiting for three rounds of revisions and so on. And also it helps save time for science in general, because if you have better design studies, then you have better studies in the end and so on. Yeah. So it's best if you can combine these two things. So we're trying to pick those because I think those are easiest to incorporate. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that everything works like this that we do. And maybe in the future, we'll come up with things that will cost everybody a bit more time and effort mm-hmm. that they just have to learn. But ideally, you want to start with the things that are relatively easy because they have a benefit for the researcher and for science. Yeah, exactly. You summed all that up in something you often say, which I think is inspired by the Pareto effect. You often say that understanding 20% of statistics will improve 80% of your inferences. And I also think that's why your blog is called the 20% statistician. So can you elaborate on this idea? Yeah. Well, I think the blog name has this, the Pareto Principle. There's a second reason for the blog name, the 20% statistician. And that's when I started years ago doing these kind of things. Very often, statisticians would tell me, 
Daniel, this is all nice, but you're not a real statistician. So in a lot of discussions with statisticians, they would say, yeah, but I mean, you know, I see you're trying to learn things and you're trying to help other people, but you're not a real statistician. And that is definitely true. And I lack probably some basic knowledge that statisticians get trained with, but I do know a lot about practice Mm. and I know what real problems people face and I know which challenges they would like to address and which are feasible to address. So yes, it's definitely true. I'm not completely a statistician, but what I try to do is indeed this Pareto principle, which is the second part. So 20% of the causes lead to about 80% of the the benefit, basically, Mm. or the problems, right? 20% of the things you do wrong mess up 80% of your inferences. Mm. But if you would just stop doing a couple of these things Mm. and you just introduce a couple of new practices, then I think you'll get a lot of improvement down the road. So that's what we try to focus on. And I also think nowadays this is necessary. I would love that everybody can learn about 100% of the things, but then you'll be dead and you won't be able to do any research. So we have people in psychology who analyze their own data, and that is just a limitation, limitation of the way that we work. It would be lovely if everybody can just go to a statistician and get help with everything, but there are not enough statisticians for this. So we need to train people some stuff to improve and then, yeah, start with the things that make the biggest impact, I think. That's really awesome. I really love this idea. Maybe from this project and all what you talked about and knowing all of that, what do you think are the principles for good experimental design, in your opinion? I know it's a really large question, so (laughs) you can take some bits of it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And it's always difficult. Like anything you say sounds like it's the only important thing. That's Mm -hmm. not true. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Statisticians will often say this. But I think the most important thing is thinking very clearly about the question that you're asking. And for me, very often it comes down to this problem Mm. where people are habitually doing certain experimental designs. So for example, I work at a department, we have colleagues and we we have an ethical review board and I'm a member of this. And this ethical review board asks for a sample size justification. Mm. And it's done this for four or five years. And the goal is to make sure that people design informative studies. Now, people very often interpreted the sample sizes justification as, well, that means I will have to do a power analysis. And we said, well, that's fine, you know, But then they would come up with some sort of hypothesis to test and some random number that they would predict. And then we would look at it and be like, "Mm, this is not a very good sample size justification. And the majority of the feedback we give is, what are you really interested in here? Don't you just want to take a look at your data? Isn't that what you're actually doing here? You just want to have some descriptives. You just want to estimate like what is the effect more or less. You don't want to test anything yet. And this happened so often that I thought, yeah, we can teach people how to do power analysis or this or this. But what people should be taught is what is the question you have and what's the best answer to this? I know that sounds super trivial. And it is trivial on one level, except that we actually unlearn people this during their PhD. I have the feeling that a PhD is sort of an acculturation process where we train people to do things that they think they should be doing. And then normatively, this is just what they will end up doing most of the time without any thought about why. Why are you doing this thing? Are you sure that this is the way? Why not this other way? I understand people can't think of everything, but I think this is really one of the main things. So yeah, so I would say think very well about your question. That's one thing. And another thing, which is also a little bit impossible, but you can try, is to justify why you are doing a certain thing in a certain way. Mm. So again, it has to do with this normative behavior, which I think we hide behind a lot because it's easy. 
Everybody does it like this. Why? I don't know, but everybody does it like this. I don't have to understand it. I think if you want to be a good scientist, you have to be able, at a certain level at least, which is probably the first why question you get, you should be able to answer this. If I ask you, okay, you did this design or this analysis, can you just tell me why did you do this? And if people would ask themselves this question, like one why question about all these things, they would either see that a lot of the time they don't know it, and then they can learn about it because apparently they need this. They can ask somebody else for help. But I think this would be a good start. So justifying a little bit more why we do certain things in our designs, in our analysis, and thinking a little bit more about our research questions. That sounds like sound principles. Answering both of these questions surely takes time. That's true. And I think it is much more difficult than you would think. But I think it's super important in the sense that it also stands in the way of other improvements. So, for example, when we look at the introduction of Bayesian statistics in psychology, yeah, it's a good idea that you learn this technique, right? That you understand Bayesian statistics. But then what we see people do in practice, if we ask, why did you use this prior? They don't know. They can't justify their use of a prior. And this is quite a common problem. So again, you see the more basic problem is, well, know why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you don't know that, then any other novelty or change to the way that we do research, like changing the statistical framework, that will have less of an impact than it should have. So I think it's an important thing, but difficult. Eh? It's very difficult to have enough expertise. Like when I listen to other guests in your podcast, like these are people who have dug into something, thought long and hard about it, and they know how to do this often. I mean, they always admit how difficult everything is. This is the tough thing, digging in and getting this understanding. Yeah, exactly. Science is hard <laughs> to sum up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good summary. <laughs> Very good summary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, it echoes also what some of the guests already said on the podcast. The fact that one of the nice things about Bayesian stats is that it forces you to think generatively, to think about how the data could have been generated by the system you're trying to study. Start from that and then you'll see which method you can use, which model you can build and so on. But start yeah. by how the data could have been generated and then think about the model and not the other way around. Yeah. So with Bayesian set, that is really interesting, I think. Plus the prior specification, as you said, which has yeah. to be justified and which helps a lot actually to fit models and so on once you start thinking about them. I agree. So some methods, some differences or changes in methods that you use force you to think about things you ignored before. And I think in Bayesian statistics, you're right. Thinking about your prior, like formalizing your predictions is a good starting point. We do sort of the same in frequentist statistics. So I always think, you know, these things are more similar than that they differ in many reasons, except maybe one thing, you have these discussions among a community. And I think that's a very nice thing about Bayesian statistics, especially if you want to get into Bayesian modeling, for example. There's a very strong sense of community. If you listen to your podcast, you know, people know each other. They're on forums together. People write very catchy tunes that have <laughs> Bayesian statistics in there. And that doesn't exist for the frequentist parts, right? So if you want to discuss things or debate them, there's no real place to do it. But if you, for example, think about equivalence testing, which is a technique we wrote about this, it's important to be able to falsify your predictions. Otherwise, if you can't be wrong, then it's not so impressive to be right. Yeah. But this, an equivalence test, forces people to think, okay, so when is an effect too small? When don't I care about the effect size because it's just too small? And this, again, is a new technique that forces people to think about things they should think about, right? So I like introducing new techniques that force people to do it. But then, of course, comes the hard part. How can we come up with a good answer? But I think whether it's a Bayesian framework or alternative frequentist tests, thinking about these things is a big challenge. Yeah, exactly. And to go back on what you were talking about, which is teaching people how to ask a good question, 
here are you talking about the research question, the causal question? I think the research question, what do you want to know? What are you interested in? What kind of questions? And this is always on multiple levels. So in the end, we want to know some big thing, but subdividing it in smaller questions makes you ask certain questions that now often we don't. So people do a lot of hypothesis testing in my field, which I like. I have not have a problem with doing a hypothesis test, but I have a problem with premature hypothesis testing, where you just come up with a silly idea. You ask a question, but because you think you should be testing a hypothesis test, you ask a hypothesis testing question. But actually, what you want to do is think about this a little bit more. So recently, we drafted a paper, it's under review now, about the role of exploration. Uh, my PhD student, Anna Schil, wrote this. And thinking about different questions people can ask in terms of more exploratory questions, like not testing anything yet, but just understanding your data, or even concept definition. Like, what is this thing that I'm studying? Asking questions about what is this thing? We skip a lot of those things and jump to a test. Whereas I think the kind of questions we should be asking is sometimes not, does X causally impact Y, but more... When I talk about X, what am I even talking about? Like, what is this thing? So it's much more on the basic level of asking questions to really understand what you're studying, I think. Okay. So when you are trying to model something and you work on a project, what's your workflow? When do you know that you're at a point where you can say, okay, that is my question and I think that is a good question and then I guess I can start working on the model, analyzing the data and so on. How do you do that? Because I'm in experimental psychology and in my case, it's really more cognitive processes. For example, I was interested in when things become meaningful for people. Like, mm. How do we attach meaning to certain concepts and how do words or things become meaningful? So what we can do quite easily is study these processes on our own students. Now, I'm not saying that that's good for psychology in general, but I happen to be in the field where I could basically test it on myself if I didn't already know what I wanted to study. But in principle, it's just about human concept formation. It's good to study it all around the world, but in principle, I can get pretty interesting answers from just students doing tasks. So what I thought I was doing always is testing an early hypothesis, but now I realize that what I was doing is better described as exploratory experimentation. I started up with a task and I would just think, what would people do here? Like, would there be any sort of patterns? And then I would just test it on a bunch of students and say, okay, just perform this task. And I would look at the data and be like, hmm, this is interesting. Why isn't this higher than this mean? I mean, I was thinking about this. And then slowly but surely, you start to design more informative experiments, thinking, okay, so apparently these kind of things are noticeable and these are not, and they do this and this. And then after a while, you can really make at least pretty nice predictions, even about effect size, like, okay, this uh, relationship should be very close to zero, this relationship should be much more substantial, mm. and it's for this reason, but also have a good understanding of the causal mechanism by then. And then this, we can, of course, tweak the environment exactly how we want. Mm. So we can do tasks where we say, well, first, the participant will go through this 30-minute training session, and after they have done that, their behavior should have changed if this is the mechanism. So yeah, then we would do those kind of tests, but only this in the end was the real test that we were doing. But a lot of the stuff is really just trying things out. The thing is that we didn't share these kind of exploratory things. We only shared the end result, yeah. like it magically popped out of our heads, like, oh, genius. But the whole preceding process is much more interesting. And now when I go back in time and I read papers from, for example, the 40s or the 50s, those papers were written up like this. You see them try a lot more tiny things. Somewhere, a psychologist in any case lost this interest in the process leading up to the discovery and just only 
only publishing this end result, but Mm -mm. for a complete understanding and also for a better representation of what science is. Seeing the entire workflow would be a lot more interesting. Yeah, I completely agree on that. I find that there is a huge survivor bias in the tutorials, in the books and so on. Actually, most of the time when you see a book, you see the last model that the author tried. It's the last one because it worked, but it's only the last one that works. And you don't see the numerous other models that the guy tried and failed. And I think it would be a lot better to see that too. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. You've mentioned this before in the podcast. Also, the blog posts have this same sort of like you show it on a Mm. working example. But this is exactly the same in research. So you see the things that work and you're like, oh, this is nice. This is impressive and cool. But if you would see how things fail, then you think, okay, well, now I know the boundary conditions. It works under these circumstances, but not like this. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do was more like the thing where it doesn't work. So that's good to know, right? So I shouldn't be trying it if I also have this problem. Yeah, Yeah, and, and you're completely right. I can also understand we don't share everything because maybe a bit of a stimulus overload. You have to select some but we definitely are miscalibrated in how interesting failures are. Yeah, I completely agree on that. And it's also actually why I created this podcast and also why I found it really interesting to talk with you because you work a lot on the quality of research methods and think about flawed research methods and so on. So yeah, that's actually a question I had because I like on this podcast to focus more on problems and failures than on successes. And it's not to pick on people and to name and shame. It's really the opposite, actually to learn from those mistakes because there are a lot more mistakes than successes so you can learn a lot more from that so my question for you here would be what do you think are good examples of flawed research methods I think one of the things why psychologists find all these flawed research practices so interesting, why as a field, it is sort of leading the way in working on these topics. I think it is because it tells us something about the people. So a lot of these things are not just bad training, that's true, but it also tells us a lot about confirmation bias and how much we want to be right about when we predict something. And it tells us something about how science rewards being right and not being wrong about things. I think one of the biggest insights is the value of not predicting something correctly, right? So in our literature, everything worked out as people predicted. And we were very impressed by this. But now we see that if you don't see the other side, the failures to predict something, you can't really distinguish the things that were good predictions or not. So I think that's one of the big insights, which has to do maybe with publication bias. So I think one realization, I'm not sure if everybody realizes, a lot of the focus is actually on statistical mispractice, right? Tweaking numbers, running multiple analysis. This is all problematic. So that's one level. I think the other level that we are slowly getting more and more into is the fact that we don't share our failures to replicate. We have publication bias and publication bias makes knowledge generation so incredibly difficult. I don't know if everybody fully agrees or fully understands the extent of the problem, but I would say that's another very big one. So our tendency to only show the things that work and our failures, we hide them away. How much this is destroying science is, I think, important. Mm. Another final thing is learning that science is really hard, as you (laughs) mentioned before, and maybe too hard to do very well completely by yourself. So I think that is a big issue that we realize, well, maybe not everybody can be a perfect theoretician and experimentalist and statistician and understand the philosophy of science. You can be a great science communicator and a great writer. So I think that is also an insight that we wonder now, okay, 
So how much can we do by ourselves? What can we do by ourselves? And what can't we do by ourselves? That's super interesting. And I agree that it's so hard to concentrate all of that in the same person. Yeah, like some of the guests on your podcast, if I hear them talk about things and how much time I know they have to spend on figuring things out to the level, like to become experts on the things they are experts on, it would be interesting to ask them, like, how much time do you need to get to this point? I think a lot of time. And if I see, like, I have a very limited understanding of a lot of things. I mean, I know a little bit about statistics, but I find my knowledge extremely limited. I think it might be on certain points a little bit better than my colleagues. But I still don't know a lot. But then it took me years to learn a lot of these things. So what are we reasonably expecting people to achieve? I'm getting interested in microeconomics. You know, we're in a lockdown, so uh, <laughs> I mean, I have to read some books. I'm learning about microeconomics. And there they say specialization logically follows from a, sort of a free market principle, optimization. Everybody just becomes good at something. You trade, you exchange, and that's the way that everybody becomes more productive. When I read this book, I think, how does this work in science? We don't do this. Everybody has to do everything. They literally describe like, well, it would be very efficient if we create a product and then one person makes every aspect of this product. Yeah. That's super inefficient. No, there's a company that makes the computer chips. Everybody makes parts of the mm. final product and they become very good at this. But scientists don't. So I don't know. It sounds to me like a very peculiar way to organize science. Yeah, I agree. I guess it's a guess. It's a prior, I'd say. But <laughs> I guess it also depends on the field. Maybe some fields are more advanced on that road than others. I don't know what you think about that. But in my mind, from the different guests I've had, I'd say that fields like physics or astrophysics and so on maybe are more advanced on this corporation way to do things. It's true. What I especially find interesting in physics is you have a big diversity in options. Mm. So I think that is the main thing lacking in my field. If I want to become a specialist in something, let's say Bayesian data analysis, that's going to be my thing. And I want to contribute my skill to many different projects. There is no option for me to have this more collaborative career because people will say, and this is a problem for a lot of statisticians in academia, I think they will say, Daniel, this is all very nice, but you're second, third, fourth author mm -hmm. on all these different papers. There's no coherence among them because you analyze all types of data. Mm -hmm. What is your thing? What is your contribution mm -hmm. to science? Well, your contribution is all these people didn't mess up their data analysis. <laughs> Super important, right? But that's difficult to put on your resume. Like, this is my thing. Yeah. So in some fields, this is possible. In physics, you can have these specialization routes. But what they also do is they still have careers for people who don't want to do this. That's fine. If you want to work individually, you can become a theorist. There's even experimental work you can just do in your office with a high-speed camera and some water droplets dripping down and whatever <laughs> physics of plasma, I think. I mean, you can do stuff by yourself, but you can collaborate. And in my field, we don't give people this option. We don't give people the option to specialize. That's super interesting. We talked about these flawed uh, research methods and flawed mm -hmm. incentives and so on. But do you see some positive stuff happening thanks to this questioning that came from the reproducibility crisis and then the reproducibility project? Yeah, yeah, definitely. In terms of science, changes in science are super slow normally. Well, in the last 10 years, but probably five years, you see really a lot of changes in the expectations that people have about what we can do, what we can't do, what we value more and less. 
for example, we see that there's this initiative about registered reports where people specify in advance what they are predicting. And it's a lovely format where, you know, a lot of the flexibility and the messing around with data analysis is prevented, but also where the analysis plan is reviewed before the data is collected. And what you see is that people say, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, it prevents this data dredging and messing around with your analysis. That is good. You also see that people appreciate getting feedback on their research ID by experts in the field before they actually do it. And I would say that makes a lot of sense. Again, we have different expertises. People will pick up on something, tell you, hey, watch out for this. So I think that is a very positive development. We see that more and more. But we also see that people are raising the expectations about the level of statistical understanding that people have. There are more checklists that say basic mistakes, like interpreting a non-significant p-value as the absence of an effect, not accepted anymore. If you want to make a statement about a null, do something like Bayesian statistics, do something like equivalence testing. So we see people really recommend alternative strategies to analyze their data. So there's, in that sense, in a short amount of time, a lot of improvement on all sorts of fronts. We have this journal, it's called Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science. And that is a journal that exists to advance methods and practices. So it's lovely, right? So this is a journal that is aimed at any starting PhD student should be able to read a paper and think, hey, it was like this, but I see here in this paper, no, should be improved. So I find that all are very good developments, I think. In general, if I sounded a bit negative, it is because we have a lot to do, but we're also doing a lot of stuff. There are very clear improvements. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's really amazing what you guys do. It's really positive developments and it's really interesting. Also, it has to be highlighted somehow because the way science works is more about highlighting what's not working. Actually, that's what you're interested about because you need to know what's not working to improve it. But it's mm. also very interesting to highlight that there is a lot of stuff working and there is a lot of improvements going on and so on. Yeah. So I guess that sometimes researchers can get a little figuratively depressed by all the criticism that's going on in seminars, etc. I think if you look at the development, some people, I think, get like really depressed depends on how much you've invested but what you mentioned before it is tough to have new knowledge look back at what you've done and realize oh man this wasn't as good as i thought at the same time what i think is helpful is to think well i mean what i try to do sometimes is think okay 50 years from now if we look back what will science look like what development will it have gone through 50 years from now people will be talking and saying oh people thought this was a good idea or this was a good idea they were crazy like registered reports maybe that works maybe it doesn't who knows maybe we'll have something else you know so 50 years is a long time but the idea that now we are doing everything perfect that's a ridiculous idea of course not you know science will improve a lot over the next decades so you should always assume that you're trying the best you can at this moment. That is, I think, the best goal you can have as a scientist. Do the best you can, given what you know and given the resources you have, but don't expect it to be perfect. That's very unlikely to be true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's always remember that each time we walk into a seminar room. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, now I'd like to focus more on open science because I know it's a topic you cherish. And actually, I was really surprised by the fact that you prioritize article reviews based on how much the articles adhere to open science principles. Mm -hmm. So do you think a more collaborative environment could come up with better research methods in general? 
Well, I think historically we are at a position where we're not used to share a lot of things about our research that now that we have the internet should be the default. Mm. So I think this is the main thing. Like a lot of the stuff that we do can just by default be open. If you used some sort of material in your research and I want to know exactly what you've done, what we used to do was describe it in words. But now we can just upload the material somewhere. And that's much easier for everybody to understand. I can just look exactly at the things that you've used. Or I can even do your experiment. The same for data. You're trying to summarize your data in data analysis. Okay, but what if I think that your statistical approach was suboptimal and I would like to do it in a slightly different way? Well, then I find it super useful to just be able to take your data, take a look at it, and as a reviewer say, well... I thought this was a better approach, but I see it doesn't matter at all. So it's okay. It's fine. Sure. Okay. I feel that in terms of openness in what we share, these things I think should be pretty much the default, if possible. There's privacy issues with data, of course. So you have to take care. But I think in terms of my review preferences, also in terms of way of working, but I see reviewing as a service. I get more requests than I can accept. So I can select and I have to select in some way. And yeah, then I select on things that I think should be rewarded. I mean, I'm not saying that getting a review from me is a reward, but in any case, you know, reviewers will accept it a little bit faster when it's open. So yeah, I try to support the things that I would like to see more of in the field. I think that makes sense. When we started to do this, there's a paper on this, the Peer Reviewers Openness Initiative. So these are reviewers that say explicitly when they get a request, they take a look. If they can't find data materials and there's not a good reason not to share them, They will say, sorry, I can't review this. I'm going to review something else. So they would immediately reply and do this. So this initiative from 2016, I think then it was slightly debated, like, can you actually do this? And now I think we've quickly moved to a time where funders are starting to say, hey, if we fund your research, you should share the data if possible. So we're going to this default state rather quickly. Yeah, that's interesting. And I love this idea of when you can do something about it and you think that in your position, you can try to align the incentives of journals with the principles of open science. And you can align these incentives through many researchers conditioning their reviewing upon the articles being open science. It seems to me like a very good way to do it. I think economists would agree with that because they often <laughs> emphasize uh, incentives and so on. I think psychologists too. Yeah. And maybe it would be interesting to put this peer reviewers initiative in the show notes because I'm sure a lot of my audience comes from the data science world where actually open data is really widespread and sometimes also taken for granted. So I know these topics are really dear to my audience. Yeah, but sometimes code, for example, is not always shared. So it depends on where yeah. you work but I have colleagues working more in machine learning mm. and then yeah not all the algorithms are shared often the code is run on maybe even open data or mm. data sets that people use but then not all of the code is shared so I think All fields can learn a lot from other fields. We are very turned inward and mm -hmm. think, well, this is the way that we do it. But I find it extremely useful to just look around and be like, hey, if this works over there, why wouldn't it work where we are? I mean, this seems like a very good idea. Why don't we also do this? For some fields, this might be an interesting approach to try. Yeah, yeah. Completely. And that's also why I love doing these special episodes, you know. And actually, it reminds me of an article I read I think two or three years ago, I think it was in the Atlantic. The idea of the article was to say that maybe we should just burn the research papers as they exist today to get to something closer to Jupyter notebooks, 
You know, mm. I, I think you read this article too. It was really viral at the time. And the idea was to say that research papers in the classical sense were invented in a time where you could replicate the studies with a pen and paper. Yeah. And you could also write all the methods you used in the article because it was really done through pen and paper. But now that you have a lot bigger data and you use a lot more code and you can't put that in the paper. So a Jupyter notebook in that case would be a more appropriate medium to yeah. convey your research and help replicate their research too. Yeah, I think it's true. And there are all these limitations. Like recently we wrote an R package for power analysis. Mm. And to really understand how to operate the package, you really need a lot more instruction, like for all different cases and stuff. You need a lot more information than mm. you can put in an article, especially if articles have like 5,000 word limit uh, counts. So for this article, we wrote an article. It's under review now. The revision has been submitted. But we also wrote an online sort of tutorial book, basically. Mm. And this is, I don't know, probably if you would print it out it will be like 90 pages mm. or something mm. but it's much more informative than the article itself so it seems sometimes we just have the article like well i did some stuff but if you really want to look at it here's the other stuff mm. right here's mm. all the other stuff and i know we can do things in supplemental materials and that but yeah, I like the online presence of information that you can update it if you've learned more. I wouldn't be surprised if this changes a little bit. I know we need to have a stable scientific record. That's, I think, important for citation purposes and all sorts of things. But for just sharing knowledge, I think the article format is a bit outdated. Definitely. Nice to hear. And yeah, definitely exciting to see where all of this is going to go. Yeah. And to focus more on the reward structures in science, because I know you've done some research on these topics. What can you tell us about that? And what do you think about the reward structures in science right now? I think you gave a nice example before of not wanting to upset people by asking <laughs> difficult questions, right? And then you said, yeah, this micro level or macro levels. And this is exactly the issue, I think. We have individual short-term preferences and we have long-term collective preferences. So if you would ask people what should science look like, you get a different picture than what would you want to do now for your own immediate benefits. Yeah. One thing we studied is, for example, replication research. So redoing somebody else's work. Because in our field, we collect a sample, but yeah, you never know if it's a peculiar sample, if it will replicate. Mm. So, you know, we were supposed to do this from the beginning anyway. We don't. We very often collect one sample and we make bold claims. But now we realize somebody needs to replicate this kind of work. So the question is, how can we make sure that people do this? Well, the reward structures are not set up in a way that people do this by default. So if I do all the novel research and I will tell you, you have to do all the replications. <laughs> Does that feel like a good division? Is that yeah. going to be good for your resume in the long run compared to my resume? Currently, no. Of course, everybody feels this, so nobody is doing these replications. So there's just no value for them. If you understand this, and I think social psychologists understand this pretty well, the difference between individual short-term benefits and collective long-term gains, you can think, okay, so what can we do about it? And one thing here that we tried is to go to the funders, science funders, and mm. say, well, you are above this reward structure. You can make decisions and just say, okay, we are not personally invested. So the Dutch science funder since three years had a pilot project to exclusively fund replication studies. They set some money apart, and this could only be used to do a replication study. Well, all of a sudden, the reward structure changes. Because now people can ask for this specific fund only if they do replication research. Well, people still want funds. So now we have teams of excellent researchers 
asking for these replication grants and are performing the replication studies, which very often have very interesting results. I mean, it's not boring at all to do a replication study. It's very insightful. Very often we learn a lot from yeah. many of these projects. So this is one way we're thinking this through. Yeah, you can think, okay, how does science operate now? What is rewarded? What are we not doing that we should be doing? And then what could we change so that we can have more of the thing that we want? Actually, you anticipated on my next question, which was how we could change these structure and incentives to be better yeah. aligned with a more open and collaborative science. Well, this is one example, but I think the challenge is much bigger. This is one thing where we could solve it, but I think this collaborative science that you mentioned, yeah. that is so much more difficult to solve. Yeah. That really requires different evaluation on the level of universities. The discussion is ongoing in the Netherlands. I'm not sure how it is in different countries, but in the Netherlands, people are really talking about rewards and recognitions. And they are saying a lot of the things we have been saying. They know the problem, they're thinking about it, but the discussion is quite active, which is good to see. Yeah, clearly. And I'm also wondering if uh, part of the solution doesn't come also from the journals themselves, because their incentives should probably be changed also, because currently the incentives, as you said, not really to publish non-significant results or null results or replication studies and so on. So maybe here, if you realign the incentives of the journals themselves, then it should trickle down to the researchers also. I think, strangely enough, journals are not far enough removed from the reward structure itself. Mm. So they are too strongly integrated into things like citation counts. Very often, they're too much focused on citation counts. It's interesting now, again, with the internet, you see many new kind of journals. And you see journals that say, as long as it's good quality work, we will accept it. It doesn't have to be novel. We don't care about it. It has to be high quality work. So you see that there are some journals that are specializing, focusing on methodological rigor, but not on novelty. Mm. And I think that is already in part a solution, but for many people, they will still have to go with the old guard of journals if they are in an environment where this is strongly rewarded. So there again, funders and universities should say, it is good. If you publish in these journals, we will still find it impressive. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to go to these big name journals. If you do something with principle and conviction yeah. and we see this, that is what we want. I was talking to a statistician who works for a pharmaceutical company and as one of their mottos, they had science first. And I said, ah, oh, come on, that's just a fake motto, right? That's just like, you say it, but do you mean it? And she yeah. said, no, 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 they really mean it here. So if I criticize a project because it doesn't put science first, they will change it. And then I thought, okay, so this company does this, but does science do this? Do universities say science first? I'm not always completely sure. If we have a word structure where we say science first, which means publish less, if you can publish better. I mean, I don't think we always have this. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, plus I guess it's also kind of a prisoner's dilemma, you know. Almost all of the universities would have to do that at the same time because otherwise you will have free riders effect and so on. So it adds a layer of complexity to the subject, I think. I think the Netherlands is nice in the sense it's such a tiny country. So you have the united collaboration of Dutch universities and there are like 14 of them. So as I understand, the deans of all these universities get together once a year or twice a year for dinner and they fit in a room. And it's easy because it's a small country. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit more coordination. 
I think that is a good sign in the Netherlands. It might be yeah. possible to sit together in a room and say, okay, do we all value this? Are we going to do it? Let's do it. Next step is to do that at the European level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slowly but surely, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm wondering how confident you are that these new structures and incentives will happen in the near future on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest confidence. On the scale of one to ten, definitely <laughs> positive. But I have been talking to some senior people in the field who do things similar to me. Maybe it's because I'm almost 40. You know, I have to think about life. So I'm talking to some people at the end of their careers who've been doing this. And they've always also thought things would change. But I have the feeling that even those people are more optimistic now. And I think it has something to do with internet, the ease of education and training. And it has something to do with the fact that we're trying to teach people the way to do science that they intuitively feel is the right way to do it. Science is supposed to work like this. So I'm going to say an eight because of this. We have the tools to communicate. And I think we're doing something that pushes science more to what really motivated people. This is what science was supposed to be. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> Let's talk again in 30 years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I hope the podcast will still be around there. <laughs> well, Daniel, we're getting short on time, so I'm going to let you go. But before that, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. The first one is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, of course, I know you are going to ask this. There have been very good answers in the past by other guests. But because I'm a psychologist with self-interestedness, mm. I think people very often think too much about their own personal gain. And I think it would be better if everybody thinks a little bit more about other people's benefits and welfare. There's good reasons that we think like this, mm. but I think the world would be a bit better place if we could get everybody to put their own self-interest aside every now and then. Our lives are pretty good in general, mm. and they're much worse for many other people, we could do a lot more if we would stop thinking about ourselves mm. so much. So I think that would be my answer as a social scientist. And I guess you would indeed need a lot of time and resources to solve that. So <laughs> I think I think I'm not sure if it's ever gonna happen. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> and the second question is if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? I think I would go for Jersey Neyman because I have to give an answer of somebody who was foundational for the way that I do my statistics. Mm. And uh, yeah, his approaches and work were very interesting. I think he had a very interesting life, which I would like to hear more about. Mm. Maybe he's not the most well-known statistician, but I think he had a lot of impact on how people work nowadays. And I think it would be interesting to hear what he thinks about what people are doing nowadays. Mm. Okay, great. Well, Daniel... Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. I'm really glad you took the time to exchange with me about the statistics, about research methods, about open science. And I hope this gave listeners food for thought, at least, and a new perspective on these topics and that I really found fascinating. And well done again for all your projects. It's really inspiring. Thanks so much. It was a, a great pleasure. Yeah, yeah, you bet. As always, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Daniel, for taking the time and being on this show. Thanks. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, fit MC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. 
I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation. It was-